Good evening, everybody. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. Uh, we'll continue. What, what we're doing here is, is having a good look. Uh, we've been doing all week at Psalm 1 and 2. Because from here we're going to look at how we can use the Psalms to greatly enhance our prayer lives. And I'm excited for that. Uh, it's really neat. There's some things that I, I think we've, we've overlooked in the past. Um, so we're at the Psalms 1 and 2 are introduction to all the Psalms. And so we want to have those down pat before we start looking at Psalms. We want to, in every Psalm that you uh, either contemplate, read, or pray, uh, that you want to keep these first two always in mind. It doesn't mean that you have to memorize them. You can if you want. Uh, but um, just to, to keep them in the forefront of your mind, remember the first psalm is about the wicked versus the godly or the ungodly versus the godly. And then the second psalm is about the king. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take long to get that straight in your head and to before you start talking to your father or while you're talking to your father. Let's just say uh, we're doing a family thing tomorrow, so the Zoom meeting is canceled tomorrow for anyone who was interested in that. I posted it on the website and sent out an email as well. So let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our time together to learn his wonderful word and to have our hearts refreshed as, uh, as the uh, restores the soul, as, as is written in Psalm 19. Yeah, 19. <laughs> and uh, so let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your grace, thank you for your guidance, and that you, through your word, provide us with the, the boundaries of our lives, the great blessings of our lives, also what, what is good and what is harmful, also what is promised in terms of your blessing. We strive, Father, to be in uh, the, those of Psalm 1, who are the godly, who are blessed, who don't walk in the path of the wicked, but um, meditate on your word day and night. We uh, pray, Father, that through your spirit that we would see the value of that and the reason for that, which would be our great motivation, thanks to you. Thanks to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we can call you Father, and it is through his name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 2.1, we'll look at the first stanza. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is the king that he installs. Let us tear their fetters apart. And Lord is uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. It's my preferred pronunciation is Yavah, but... Uh, anyway, let us tear their fetters apart, say the nations, the peoples, and the kings, or the rulers. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. As we will see in the application of this first stanza, this prayer is, the first stanza is prayed by the infant church in Acts chapter 4. And then in Acts chapter 4, as they pray this, they also pray about Pilate and Herod and what they did to our Lord and Savior in the hope of defeating uh, him. Uh, as it says here in Psalm 2, they're going to take their stand. Certainly Pilate took his stand against the Lord and so did King Herod. And they were very unsuccessful at what they wanted to do. And that is a fulfillment of this psalm. So the first stanza is an expression of amazement. Uh, really, the first and second, of the indignation at the rage of the peoples, this amazement by God, and I guess we could say by the writer of the psalm as well, how amazed they are at the fact that the people who are mortal would rage against deity. Uh, the word rage is, uh, is a something that is, uh, in Hebrew, it means a raging sea. I mean, this is really raging, and it's a tumultuous rage in which these kings and peoples 
actually meet together. They counsel together, as you can see here. They take counsel in verse 2. So they actually get together, and we know who became friends who were once enemies when the Lord was on trial was Herod and Pilate. They didn't like each other, but because they found common ground in defeating Christ or uh, in this trial against Christ, they became friends. So the present tense here tells us in the fact that uh, the verbs where they are devising and they're raging, that's in the present tense, and therefore it's simultaneous with the coronation of the king, which is in the second stanza. So this is about the coronation or the installment of the king on Zion, and <clears throat> the uh, the word used uh, devising here in Psalm 1-2 is trans... Uh, sorry, the same word used in Psalm 2, which is devising, is the same word that's translated meditate in Psalm 1, verse 2. So this shows us, and it's a contrast that is being drawn here right in the introduction, is that while the righteous are meditating on the Scripture day and night, uh, <clears throat> the raging ungodly are devising plans of overthrow in chapter 2, verse 1. So there's this great contrast. This is where the conflict amongst people comes. Uh, on the earth, there are a certain segment of the population that have rejected the rule of the king, rejected the rule of the creator, rejected salvation and redemption, which is there's only one way that man can have that, and they've rejected that. And then there are those who have accepted it by faith. And there's a conflict between the two, and God allows this to go on. Uh, and so as we read in the epistles and with Paul especially, you know, we fight the good fight of faith because there is a fight and there always will be. And until the end of human history, when Christ returns, then as the fulfillment of Psalm 2, he is going to squash all rebellion. But that won't come until the second coming of Christ. And for that, we all must wait. So <clears throat> the, the rebels plan something. It's described as a vain thing. Vain means empty. It has no value. It has no worth. To them, it has all the worth. Uh, to, the, to those who are fighting against the Lord here or, or against his godly ones, against the church, against his law, they are, are confident in the fact that they're going to do this. Like where they say, we're going to cast off his ropes and cast off his chains, which are what the cords and fetters are about. Um, we're going to see that that really refers to God's law. And they think they're going to get around it somehow. And they're going to be able to cast off this law that God has put on them. And therefore, they'll be able to uh, stand. You know, it says they take their stand. But what does it say back in Psalm 1? They will not stand in the judgment. So they're going to be judged and there's no way around it. And Christ took our judgment upon himself. And that's the only way through there's no way around, but there's one way through, and it's through the cross of Christ. Uh, so Peter and the infant church uh, in Jerusalem praise this, not just Peter, but those who are with him. Uh, Peter and John had uh, were teaching in the temple in Psalm 3. They healed a man who was uh, lame from birth, so he was born uh, with uh, unable to walk. His legs didn't work. They never worked. And he was in his 40s, and Peter healed him. And uh, this, everybody knew this man. He begged at the, the gate of the temple, and through that uh, miracle, the message of Peter was even more uh, received and more people believed. And so the religious leaders grabbed hold of them and arrested them and eventually threw them in jail and uh, when they went to go get him out of jail the next day to continue the trial, they weren't there because the angel had set them loose. And then somebody ran into the courtroom and said, I, I saw them. They're back at the temple preaching again. And so they went and got them and brought them back. And then they told them, don't you do that anymore. <laughs> that was their way. I mean, they couldn't come up with anything to really convict them of a crime. So they abused them and probably whipped them or beat them a bit and then told him, stop preaching Christ. 
of which, of course, they were going to say that we are, are going to continue to preach Christ. And then, so if you go to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to see here that right in the infant church, right in the beginning, they're using the Psalms in their prayers. And we're going to see this. Now, if you think about this, a psalm is a prayer by a person. It's not by God. It's not... See, in the Lord's Prayer we have in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 that we have Jesus saying, here's how to pray, and he gives us the words. But in the psalms, these are people who are worshiping God who come up with their own prayers. But God takes these prayers and makes them his own. And the way that God makes them his own, though he has not originated them, is to put them in his word. Because everything in God's word is God-breathed, right? All scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. And so the prayer of the psalm writers are taken by God and installed or put into his holy scripture. And so the, you say, how many prayers are in the Bible? There's hundreds of them. And all of them are exactly what God would want to hear. Right? And it's wonderful to see this. And there's nothing. In fact, we, we find that everything in the Psalms can be injected into the Lord's Prayer easily. Uh, we'll, we'll look at a bit of that. Uh, but, but also that there's nothing that we could face in our lives that we would need to pray about. And I mean legitimately that would not be found in the Psalms in several places. Uh, so here we go. Uh, the infant church from their own hearts, uh, pray. Uh, there's a mixture of it. And I, lo- I love this. There's some psalm, there's some them, and there's some actual history as well that they're claiming. So look at Acts 4.23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions. And this is Peter, John would be with them, and others. Uh, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they, and it's all of them, lifted up their voices. So here they're praying together. This shows us that corporate prayer is very legitimate and necessary. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is word for word from Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verse 6. And by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father David, your servant, you said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. See how anointed his anointed is Christ. Anointed is Christos. For truly in this city there were gathered together against... So uh, that's the first stanza of Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage against the Lord and against his Christ? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Right? So God is in control of everything. So the fact that Pilate and Herod uh, opposed the plan of salvation and, and opposed our Lord uh, and that they became friends along the way. And who else? Who else is here besides the two kings? Well, we have a, uh, a governor, a procurator, and we have a king. Herod is actually a king. And uh, we have the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And those are the peoples that are in Psalm 2. So, We have also in Psalm 2 the prophecy that Jesus' very own people would stand against him. And this here is fulfilled. And so in the early church here, uh, really we could say the infant church, not only are they praying the psalm, but they understand it in light of history, in very recent history. They understand the psalm. They understand Psalm 2. They're praying Psalm 2. And they're actually in their prayers interpreting it and rejoicing in the fact that the psalm has been fulfilled. And so they say in verse 9, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, which is no longer Pilate and Herod, but the Sanhedrin that are uh, opposing the early church. And now, Lord, take note of their threats 
and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through your through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So what they prayed for is fulfilled. So what did they pray for? Uh, that we would have easy lives in the early church. No, that we would have riches and a fortune to build church buildings. No, what did they pray for? That they would speak the word of God with all confidence. Right? They understand what is at stake. They understand what is important. <clears throat> so they see themselves living in the reality of God's victory in the conflict that he chooses to allow to continue. And they've interpreted Psalm 2 perfectly. Hence, it's here, it's you know, recorded in the Word of God, that they have understood the conflict that they're in, the fact that they have to preach the gospel. And if they don't, that's because the place is filled with unbelievers and always will be. That they have to preach it with boldness. Why do they need that? Because they're going to be opposed. Because it's not going to be easy. Right? They're going to be so. You know, Psalm one: There's uh, the wicked, the ungodly. There's sinners who don't obey the law of God, and there's the scoffers. And the scoffers are going to rail against the early church. But here, their prayer, interpreting the psalm, incorporating the psalm, and not just Psalm two, Psalm one forty six, where they claim, "Look." You've installed your king in Zion. Who are you, Lord? Who is the Lord? In Psalm 146, the Creator. And the Creator, therefore, of all things. You know how many Psalms deal with creation? In various ways, though, it's marvelous. Sometimes it's a storm. Sometimes it's the sun going through the sky. Sometimes it's just the existence of the stellar universe, the stars. Sometimes it's the wind. Sometimes it's God feeding little animals, making sure that they get everything they need to live. And on and on they go. and say, why do we need to know these things? And I'll tell you this. There's not one psalm that's only about creation. Not one. There's not one psalm that deals with creation alone. It's always creation, and here's what that means to you. Here's your creator, and here's what that should mean to you. And the things that they mean are not the same either. Various are, they vary. Sometimes they talk about our creation, you know, the creation of us in God's image, and we're crowned with glory and honor through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes it's to praise God and to bless his name. Sometimes it's to know that such a God who can make the heavens and the earth with a word can he take care of us and bless us? Like these are in the Psalms as well. And these are things that God has given us in his prayer book to guide us in prayer. You know, if you're praying a Psalm, you know for certain that you're praying something that God has heartily approved of. Right? It's like, it's like a cheat sheet. But, and you know, it's, it's well, I'm just going to recite the Psalms. Well, yeah, you can, but not if you don't know what they mean. What you're, what you're repeating to God that you read from the Psalms is your own mind and heart understanding the, the meaning of the psalm. So the exact words that are written on the page is not really what's important when you're praying. It's what those words really mean. It's the thought, the idea, the truth that's behind them. And we can know them all. You know, and th this is going to challenge us as well. Because if we don't do this fairly consistently, then the Psalms are going to be alien to us. Uh, you know, how many times have you looked at a Psalm, or maybe we've turned to a Psalm, and you look at I don't know, maybe it's 20 lines long, and you're like, whoa, it looks like a lot. And it's poetry, right? So you're like, ooh, I don't like poetry. I don't really understand poetry. And it's a turnoff. So let me go to something easier. And 
there's a treasure in the Psalms that we lose if we do that. So how do we get over that? Well, it's like anything. You've got to do it consistently. All right? Fortunately for us, God has made some of his Psalms, they're like this big. They're like two stanzas, right? Psalm 1 is two stanzas. Psalm 2 is four stanzas. It's, you can read through them in a minute. Psalm 2 might take you two minutes. I doubt it would take you two minutes just to read it from end, beginning to end. Um, a lot of the Psalms are like that. They're not all that long. Some of them are long, especially Psalm 119. Um, but you can take that in chunks. The writer of Psalm 119 broke it up into the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can take each one, each chunk. Now, if we do this, we will glean from uh, the Psalms its treasure. We'll get used to Hebrew poetry, which has a, that wonderful parallelism. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get used to the Psalms. And now, if you read, if you do our Bible reading that we do, if you if you do it with us uh, here at the church, uh, you go through the Psalms twice a year. And now, think about it, you go through the Psalms twice a year. And you know, if my good friend Bonhoeffer, who is lover of the Psalms, uh, wants us to go through them like five times a year, he's crazy. I mean, I love him. <laughs> You know, and I I recommend it if you can, but I don't want to I don't want to scare people. You know, we're not we're not the reading culture that we used to be. You know, a lot of people like to read, uh, but <clears throat> if you went through the Psalms twice a year over the span of twenty years, thirty years, think of how familiar you would get with God's prayer book, and if you did how that would improve and make your prayer life effective. Every, all prayers. At the, at the end of Psalm 72, it says, here ends the, the prayers of David. Right, that's book one. There's five books in the Psalms. I think that's the end of book one. It might be book two. but uh, <clears throat> It says right, at the, right there in the, original, in the original manuscript, here ends the psalms, the, the, the prayers. It doesn't say psalms or songs. Here ends the prayers of David, up to 72. So let's go back to Psalm 2. <clears throat> Miss Gail, could you give me a little more volume in-house, please? I like I'm working too hard. Ah, there we go. Thank you. I think it's because I like to hear my own voice. <laughs> yes, so, thank you, Deb. You did a marvelous job yesterday. Deb was our, our uh, audio-visual girl, gal. And uh, so, but I, I, was I was, you know, posting it all, and I was checking to make sure the video was right, and I didn't like some of the sounds, so I kept, I would be like fast-forward a little and listen, fast-forward a little and listen. And what is, you know, I hate my own, nobody likes their own voice recorded. Right, I'm, I have to watch myself. Plus, I'm on the video, and I'm like, "Oh, Joe, what what did you do to yourself?" And you know, I'm watching myself and hearing myself, and I, I went home pretty depressed. Chris was like, "What's wrong?" And I was like, "I just watched about ten minutes of myself on on TV, <laughs> so I'm not in the, I'm not in the greatest mood." All right. So Peter and all of them revealed to us in real time how we can apply the Psalms to our lives. They applied Psalm 2 to their lives. And they greatly rejoiced in that. Psalm 2 now pits the morals. This is not the morals, the mortals. Psalm 2 pits the mortals against deity and earth against heaven. In this corner, weighing in at one pound, is the earth and the bunch of idiots on it who think they can fight God. And in the red, we'll put God in the blue corner. In the blue corner is, you know, how are they going to do that? And it's no wonder the writer and God is amazed. Uh, so uh, the, they take their stand and they take their stand against. Uh, so it's obviously antagonistic. In verse 2, the, kins, the kings take their stand. The rulers 
take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed who is the Christ. The ungodly... Uh, the ungodly think they're standing against the people of the church. Or, in, in this case, in Psalm 2, you know, the literal historical references to the nations that are surrounding Israel. I put that map up a couple of times where you have Ammon and Edom and Egypt to the south, and you got the Arameans who are the Syrians to the north. You know, and they're in the Philistines. They're constantly at war with Israel, you know, on and off. And you know, they think that their real antagonism is, you know, or their real enemies are Jews, right? But is, is it the Jews? Does God say that you know they've taken counsel against Israel? No, it's against God. And why? Because when you, if you go against God's people, you're going against God. So Jesus said to them, look, whatever they do to you, they've done to me. Right? The littlest thing that they've done against you, they've done to me. You give a cold, cup of cold water to them, you've given it to me. And as the Lord said to uh, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not the church. And so the ungodly think they're standing against the people of the church. But, and this is what is to give us comfort and courage. They're not fighting me. Right? If I'm standing on the truth and I'm being persecuted, Jesus says what? Blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name's sake. You're blessed. That's part of the Beatitudes. That's also Psalm 1.1 and Psalm 2.12. This blessedness at both ends to the one first who doesn't walk in the path of sinners but delights in the law of the Lord, he's blessed. And at the bottom, he pays homage to the king and kisses the king. He's blessed, he or she. And the blessing to man is at both ends. It's, mar- it's marvelous what God has done here. And as he reveals in his word... We see it in Psalms, we see it in the Gospels, we see it in the Epistles, we see it in the narratives, we see it in the prophets. It's this seamless drama. It's really what it is. From beginning to end, it's, you know, I'd say a story, but it's really a drama. It's this drawn out drama over thousands of years in which we have the fall of man and the redemption of man and the glorification of man. And all throughout that, everybody who's trying to stop it, of which there have been many, many, many. So as uh, God said to Samuel, when Samuel was extremely depressed that Israel wanted their king, wanted a king, a human king, it's, you know, it was prophesied that they would have a king, which is maybe a bit confusing. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God gives the laws to the king, how the king is supposed to be. And we say, well, why is Samuel so bummed out about this? And if you read the text a little caref- more carefully, it's because they wanted a king that was like other nations. They just wanted to be like everybody else. Oh, and it's a plight upon Christians, too. We get some Christians, I'm not saying here, but some Christians get in their mind that, you know, I don't want to be so different from everybody else. You know, to live ethically, righteously, uh, to live in this plan, this eternal life, it's going to make you a lot different. You're going to talk differently. You're going to value different things. You're going to behave very differently, think very differently. And what do people, people who don't understand, what do they do with things that are different? Right? They hate them. So anyway, as God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 7, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but, sancti- but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we, who rejects, they reject the gospel that I've given them. They reject me? No, they're rejecting God. 
to another Christian if you're trying to instruct them in the ways of purity, which is really sanctification. Somebody who's letting sin run their lives, and you see that. You pray for them, but maybe you also counsel them. Maybe you also reprove them. Sometimes that's very necessary. And they reprove you back. They reject you. Are they rejecting you? No. Sometimes we'll say to ourselves, well, maybe if I said it better, or maybe if I said it differently, that's not the case. The case is, did you, did you communicate the truth in your way, in your words? And if they have rejected it, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected God. So what do we say? Well, good luck at the judgment seat, jerk. Uh, sometimes I think that, but I know I'm not supposed to. What are we supposed to do to those, these uh, nations, kings, rulers, people who are rejecting the gospel and the Lord? We are to pray for them. The Lord Jesus, the very king of Psalm 2, when he was walking on this earth, told his disciples and to all of us in Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version, Luke, 2, 20, Luke 6, sorry, 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. <laughs> They're like, oh Lord, not that. Tell me to do anything else, but not that. But what is this? This is the Sermon on the Mount is Christ taking the law and showing us what it really meant, what it always meant. What it always meant. See, the, the, the Jews thought they liked the law. These are the ones who didn't believe, you know, the religious. They thought, you know, they, we adhere to the law, we keep the law. And Christ said to them, look, you, you made up a law. You've made up quite a few. But one of the ones that you made up. See, there's, in the law, it's love your neighbor as yourself. And the Jews, well, who's my neighbor? What about that jerk next door whose dog keeps going on my front lawn? Uh, well, he's your enemy. Well, I've got it. Right? I, I know how to think. If I love my neighbor, I should hate my enemy. Right? Law of God. And Jesus had to correct this. He's like, no. Did I tell you to hate your enemy? You find that anywhere in the law? No, you do not. So I say to you. And so Jesus did. You heard it said, but I say to you. It was uh, in the um, the trailer for the coming season of this of the the chosen. There was a little scene where the guy playing Jesus bursts into a synagogue, and the synagogue official says, "Who are you to break the law?" or something like that. And Jesus, the the Jesus character, looks him in the eye and says, "I am the law." And the guy about pulls his hair out. As Jesus did say, you know, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> he said he said this to them. I don't know the words the words they used are not exactly from the gospel, but but it it just the quick little scene. It was brilliant. You can just imagine the Lord Jesus Christ with his piercing eyes and his absolute authority and confidence saying, "I am the law," and he is. I mean, who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai? It was what angels gave, but when they went up the mountain and they stood there and there's a throne, I love this scene, and the throne, it has sapphire, this sapphire base. And the Lord told Moses, and he, when he told him to take up the, the 70 that were with him, you know what they did with the Lord when they were up there? It says that they ate and they drank with the Lord. And it's a nice little segue into the Lord's Supper there. They, they fellowshiped with the Lord, eating. And you fast all the way at the end in Revelation 19, where the Lord, we're at the wedding feast with the Lord. What are we doing? 
And now <clears throat> we're eating and drinking. And now when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? And the Lord's in our midst when we do that. We're eating and drinking with Him. And by faith, if we have faith in all of this, it'll open our eyes. And if we have our eyes open, as the Lord said, we'll see. Uh, so, as was translated by Luke in Acts chapter 4, Luke is the writer of Acts, uh, and he writes, Luke writes some pretty complex Greek. Uh, he's one of the ones that are, uh, he's one of the hardest ones to read. So, I got my, so I'm, I'm third semester Greek right now, so I'm starting to learn enough to be dangerous, really. And but there's it depends on what passage I can read it, right? Right from the Greek, especially like First John, First John, the Gospel of John, not too hard. Uh, and then I, I got this this you know this book. So I said so when we do our Bible reading in the morning, which we're we're we were in Luke. Now we're in Acts, which is also written by Luke. I said, rather than read it in the English, I'll try and read it in Greek, and that'll help improve my Greek, because I, I really want to get fluent at it, as fluent as I can. So I'm looking at this text in Luke, and I'm looking at the, and it, it's a half an hour later, and I've made it through like one, one line, because I, I can't understand it. So I told my Greek professor about this, and he's like, well, what passages were you reading? I was like, I was trying to read the Gospel of Luke, and he was like, oh, man, don't start there. He said he's been doing it for 30 years. He says he has a hard time reading Luke. So there you go. I'm like, all right, good. I'm gonna put it away. We'll wait till we get to something easier. Uh, the anointed Luke translates this word Mashiach. See that? It's wonder. It's fun to pronounce. It's got that at the end. You spit a little. Mashiach is the anointed, and it's anglicized into. Messiah. So Mashiach becomes Messiah. But in Greek, the translation of it is Christos. And so Mashiach, the anointed, is the Christ. And so, and the Jews knew this. That's why they would say to him, if you are the Christ. Right? It is final trial in front of the Sanhedrin. If you are the Christ, say it. And he said, yes, I am. And that's when the high priest tears his robe. What further need of witnesses do we have? String them up. <clears throat> now, the peoples are, this is who they're against, right? They're going to overthrow the Messiah. Well, good luck with that. And in, in Acts chapter 4, you know, this is what they're rejoicing about. And even they're trying to stop Peter and John and all the rest from teaching the gospel in the temple after the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, they're not fighting Christ there. Christ is at the, up in heaven at the right hand of God. They're just going after Peter. And certainly, come on, they can push Peter around. Peter denied the Lord. He was afraid. Um, but we find that they can't push Peter around at all. That Peter, in Acts 3 and 4, Peter shines. Well, Acts 2, 3, and 4, you know, he's... He's the one who we see give the Pentecost message. And, and in Acts 3 and 4, he's in the midst of... Uh, the, I mean, he should have been intimidated by all these people. They're glaring at him. And he preaches the gospel with boldness and confidence. And he's uh, articulate. And they, they understand. They're like, this guy's a fisherman. How does he know so much? And he has by faith, put his life in the hands of the Messiah. And he knows, my king rules. My king rules at the right hand of God. So they can't even push the church around, right? Satan, Satan probably, you know, Jesus isn't here. He's at the right hand of God. I'll just squash the church. These people, brand new believers, should be easy. But he couldn't do it. He tried. Believe me, he tried, as you know. And here's the prophecy of God. I love this one. Jeremiah 31, 36. <clears throat> God says through the prophet, if this fixed order, in context, the fixed order is the sun, the moon, the stars, and the oceans. 
If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. And where's, where's the throne of this nation? Zion. And so God says, all right, you want to overthrow the Messiah, get to work on getting rid of the sun, the moon, all the stars, and the oceans. You've got to get rid of them all. I don't know where you're going to put them. <laughs> As if you could do anything. So, you know, to us, what does this mean? Well, at first it means that the promises to Israel are yes and amen. They're, they are going to happen. The nation of Israel will have its uh, day in the sun, literally, S-O-N and S-U-N. Uh, the nation of Israel will be uh, enjoy the fulfillment of its covenants. This will happen for a thousand years. The Lord will reign on earth over the nation of Israel, and we will be there as well. And the nations will come and bow to Israel. Now, what does this also mean to us now? Do we see who our Lord is? Do we see who our anointed king is? Do we know as believers that we're united to him in marriage? This one is our husband. And that he has placed you in the very sphere of the fellowship of the Trinity. The sphere of the Trinity and love and joy and peace. Their love, their joy, their peace that he has given to us. So why should we fear anything outside of not pleasing him? Why wouldn't we long to please him if this is your king? And he certainly is. So go forward. You can hold your place here. We'll come zipping back in a minute. Just uh, go forward to Philippians 4. You know, I think of the Lord standing in front of the priests and standing in front of Pilate, right? His strength. And this is why, the, you know, the Gospels are given to us so that we can see this and live it as if we're there. I mean, isn't it, isn't it different than, uh, as I said, I just finished a book on uh, um, the Wright brothers listening to it. And, yeah, I try to put, I put myself at Kitty Hawk where they first flew this thing and fly it very far. But once they, once they were up in the air for like two minutes, they knew they had it. It's pretty amazing. And the, the, their first demonstration in front of people, they were in the air for two minutes. And I thought to myself, oh, man, everybody must have been like, oh, you know, there are a few hundred spectators, they, I would have thought, two minutes in the air, they were all turned around and been like, wow, this is stupid. Why do we even come out? They were amazed. They never saw anything like it. A person in this thing that looked like a big kite. And, two, and when he flew it two minutes, and he made a nice turn, and he came right back at them and landed it. Safely. And they... And they knew it. If I can fly for two minutes, I can fly for an hour. And they did. Within a few weeks, they were up in the air for an hour, an hour and a half, flying you know, 70, 80 miles. Crazy. And I try, you know, I'm trying to picture myself there, and it's, you know, okay, it kind of, it's kind of hard, though. You know, we see planes all the time. And to see somebody flying around for two minutes, eh. But when you read the Gospels, and you try and put yourself there, it's like nothing else. It's like nothing, no other time in human history. And we must do this. We must, you know, why, why is this history of the Lord given to us? To us who can really understand Him. Who can see His face. It, it's so that we can put ourselves there and, and see that man do what he does and then know when it, when it really rushes in upon our souls that that one is my king. He's my Lord. 
He's my husband. He did he all he did that for me. Right? I can touch him. I can claim him. I'm I'm his. He's mine. He's in me. And so the the reality of this, and that's what that's what I think is missing in in a lot of Christianity, is the reality of the truth, and that every day to me, and it's it's not like mysticism, but I think there's not enough. I think it depends. In some places, there's way too much mysticism. It's all feeling and it's all emotion. And there's no understanding of the Word of God. But then on the other side, the pendulum swings to the other side. And it's all doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And there's no reality of what the truth means on a day-by-day basis as you really walk with your Lord and speak with Him, pray to Him, and worship Him, and long for Him. There has to be a reality there. So as Paul would say to me, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say, again I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So does he mean he's coming near coming back soon or near near you? Well, maybe he means both. So then he says, look, if the Lord is near, again, this is your king who's on Zion and will forever rule the nations, the whole world. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Now, this, this is one of the places where I get a little... I get a little uh, perturbed at translations because this is the exact same word that's translated petition in Ephesians 6.18 and twice in Philippians 4 in this very letter it's translated prayers Uh, and so what what, uh, it's used in 16 different verses in the New Testament so supplication is the word for asking so it can be prayer it can be supplication it can be petition It's it's a very simple word for asking. So, but in everything by prayer and asking, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many times is verse 7 quoted? And the part on prayer, which is in verse 6, left out. Right? It says, and, there's a chi there. The conjunction carries the thought through. In everything by prayer and asking and thanksgiving, let all your requests be made known to God. Legitimate ones, of course, according to His will, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, is it only prayer? So we just pray all the time? No, but it is obviously here. It's a major, a major uh, place in the Christian life. You know, before this, well, actually, the context of the whole letter is us you know, living according to the plan of God, making the right decisions. Uh, prayer is also mentioned in chapter 1. But prayer is a big part of this. And, and, so, and why, why is it so necessary is that the things that I'm learning and the things that I have to live, the learning and the living have to be with God. Not, all right, God, I know you're light years away. Just give me all the information. I'll do the best I can down here, separate from you. And then when I go home to you, then we'll, we'll talk about how I did. And there's this disconnect because of what? The distance, the time, the fact that you can't see him, hear him and feel him right now. But there should not be, this is why God has given us prayer and why there's so much of it throughout the Bible and why God would give us a prayer book not with one prayer or ten, but with 148, the first two being the introduction. And not only those, 
throughout the whole Scripture, by Paul in his epistles, by his instructions in Colossians. He commands us to keep praying. In Ephesians, keep praying. And Jesus, in the upper room, four times, ask anything. But what's a caveat there? Do you remember? We're going to return to it here coming up. Ask me anything in my name. Ask the Father. He changes it. Ask the Father in anything in my name. And it will be done. In my name means in my will. Yeah, that's terrific. Alright, so back to Psalm 2. Alright. Silly me, thought I was going to get through all of this today. Not going to happen. <clears throat> so we're still on the first stanza. And it's, it's important for this. This is these two psalms. They have to sink in. Um, part of the great lesson here, and I've already mentioned it, is that all the shenanigans going on in our world, no one's going to get away with a thing. So we say they're getting away with it. They've got the inside track. Oh, and they do. <laughs> I mean, it's they're not even hiding it anymore. Like at least they used to hide it a little better. But not anymore. <laughs> uh I, I just saw the most ridiculous interview with an FBI agent over the, the whole laptop thing, and he was just like, Well, you know, basically just said, Yeah, we kind of misled, but yeah, what are you going to do? It's, you know, they know they're not going to get caught. So, Well, they're caught, but they're not going to get prosecuted. So, okay, they're getting away with it. The way, is this, this has always gone on all throughout human history. Yeah, in Persia, if the king made a law, that, that was it. There was no assembly. There was no legislature. You see, in the book of Esther, you see this quite wonderfully. The king summoned his wife to come out and dance before all the people at a big, huge party, and she said no. Oh, and the king was furious. So he made a law. All women must obey their husbands everywhere. Think about that. We're going to make a law that you have to obey your husbands. In other words, your husbands are so weak that the king has to make a law by penalty of death if you don't obey them, then we're going to come get you. And it's just the most ridiculous thing. But they did this all the time. Once the king makes a law in Persia, it can't even be undone. right? If he changes his mind, he said, you know, I had too much to drink last night. I probably shouldn't have done that. Too bad. That is it. It is a decree. <laughs> they get away with anything. They could do whatever they wanted. Are they going to get away with it? Nope. So they say in, uh, again, two, three, let us tear their... Fe the fetters and the cords are like ropes and chains. They refer to the fact that these kings, rulers, peoples, they think they're in bondage. But they are they really? You know, they think they're in bondage, and, and they are, but they really don't have any idea what is coming. And, you know, like um, in the book of Revelation, right, after we have the, the vision of heaven and the 24 elders and all the angels, the 24 and the four creatures, they're, uh, they're praising God. Worthy are you, our Lord, to receive glory and majesty and honor. And they, they speak this. We say sing, but it doesn't say sing. It says they speak it. Basically, they worship God. And then in chapter 6, the Lamb opens a seal. And then another one. And then another one. And there's seven seals. And then there's seven trumpets. And then there's seven bowls. And they just come one after another after another. Over a period of just a few years. And what it reveals to us, this is we see it through the history of the Old Testament, is that things look 
calm, good. Doesn't look like God's paying attention, right? As as they say, as Peter uh, claims that they say, they say, you know, you've been saying God's going to come back for all these thousands of years, and He hasn't. So, come on, He's not coming back. There's no judgment. There's there's nothing like that that you you Christians are saying, rapture and return of Christ. But when it starts, it happens fast. That's the thing. Once you know, once one seal is opened, that seal's been closed for thousands and thousands of years. But once there's seven seals on the scroll, as soon as he opens one, the other six go quick. As soon as one trumpet blasts, the other six come quick. As soon as one bowl is poured out upon the earth, the other six they're in succession, succession. Sequence, square. I don't know what I'm saying, but anyway, that they pour the bowls out, come upon the earth. Once it starts, it comes fast. People don't understand what real bondage is. People in our nation think that they're suffering. Oh, come on, who is suffering here? I mean, I know some are in their personal lives, but. So, so many in the world think they're in bondage. They have no idea of what real prison is. And what I mean by real prison is the judgment of God. And this applies to believers as well. I mentioned this yesterday. We imagine that life is so hard and we start complaining. And complaining leads to sins. Various sins that accompany everyone who is discontent. Discontent people sin. They continuously sin in pretty much the same way as all discontent people do. And we all find ourselves doing this at times. And then we have our Father, who will reveal to us, oh, we had it all wrong. That really wasn't that bad. That it really wasn't that hard. Because then he brings discipline. And when the discipline comes, then reality is revealed. The chords that these are under, where it says in verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and their cords away from us, is it takes us back to Psalm 1, which is the law. Now, if you recall, the one who is blessed delights in the law. So we don't see the law as bondage. If we delight in the law, we love the Word of God. And the boundaries it puts upon us the things that we owe to it, which is our fidelity, our honor, and our obedience. We actually enjoy that. And even though we find some, some of it, some of the law is hard for us, depending on the person, different parts. Of, when I say the law, I'm talking about all Scripture, is what someone is really referring to. Uh, and and we, find, uh, we find some parts hard. But, as it says here in Jeremiah 5.5, 5, I will go to the great, I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. Right? So this, is, this would be Jeremiah going to the... He had a, talked quite a bit with the leaders and also preaching from the temple of which he would come across the religious leaders all the time and, he, and people who did know the law of God and the ordinance of God so that's what Jeremiah says. It's the beginning of his ministry. I'll go to the great. I'll speak to them. They know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. What is he going to speak to them? That you all, this nation needs to change because as was prophesied by my predecessor, Isaiah, that the, 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 um, the destruction is coming. Right? The Babylonians are coming. And if we don't change our ways, they are going to destroy us. Thus says the Lord. So, Jeremiah thinks, and see this? Jeremiah thinks that I'll go to them. They know the way. They know the ordinance. And they'll be like, thank you, Jeremiah, for opening our eyes to this. We didn't see it. But no. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. They rejected him. And actually told him to shut up and threw him in jail. 
and the Babylonians came. <laughs> you know, right? They, you can't stop it. But, you know, getting back to when judgment comes, it comes quickly. You know, for ages, there's no, you know, we've been hearing this for, right, Isaiah's, 700 BC, this happens five, this is like 590-ish. So we've got like almost 200 years here. It's over 100. You know, like you've been telling us this for 100 years. Now, in biblical history, 100 years is a blip. But think about it. Say if someone has been telling us since 1922 or since 1900, that such and such was going to happen, such and such was going to happen. We've been hearing it for a hundred years. You're like, dude, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. But then when they come, they come. And this is what the world does not understand. But we do. And why can we? Because we have the scripture. We know about those final judgments, right? We know about the end. God has given us just a little bit enough to know. We know in Psalm 2 that our king is going to reign and that he's going to put down all rebellion and that he is going to rule all the nations. And he promises us that we'll rule with him by means of the grace of God. So what is there to fear? Nothing. And everything to pray about. Now let's pray that I finish because I'm out of time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. For your word, thank you that you've opened and continue to open our hearts concerning the truth of prayer, the truth of your victory, the truth of your promises. We ask, Father, that through your word and your word alone that we would be greatly encouraged and encouraged to pray, pray the Psalms, and understand, Father, that we have plenty of time to do it. Let us explore it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.